Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We're going to talk about three big topics today. The Brewers are finally making moves. Lorenzo Cain and Christian Yelich are in Milwaukee. And everybody wants to know what will Miller Park do to their offense. So we'll take a look into that. The Astros lineup quite good last year might actually be better this year, which seems a little bit unfair. And maybe I'm the only person who thinks the Oakland A's are extremely interesting. But they're super interesting uh, from a StatCast perspective. So we're going to talk about that. Matt, let's start with... The Brewers, uh, in like an, the space of an hour last Thursday, they went out and they got Lorenzo Cain and Kristen Yelich, uh, which is cool because the Brewers were a little bit better than expected last year. Before we dig into the park factors, were you surprised, right? It seemed to me they played over their head a little bit, and then Jimmy Nelson unfortunately gets injured, and he was their best pitcher, obviously. So are you surprised to see them making these kind of moves? Um, Not really, because, I, I mean, they have a lot of interesting young players. They have a lot of payroll flexibility even after these deals like their payroll right now is still like it's like 90 million and the, the only like really big exp- I guess they've got Kane now but besides Kane is Ryan Braun he's got three years left but like it's like 20 million per year which in the current climate for him is like pretty reasonable he's still pretty useful I mean, yeah. he's not the superstar he was but he's a consistently above average hitter so like all things considered like They've got smart people running that team, so I think that what they're doing is 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 pretty well calculated. Now, do you think that they are? I guess the question is, how good are they? I think if we look at the projections on Fangraphs right now, they don't they don't actually like them that much, right? It's still like seventy nine wins. I think you have it in front of you, right? Is that what they're listed at? Seventy seven wins. Right. I, I'll take the over on that. I think that's a a little uh, low, but also I, I understand why because if you look at these guys. Travis Shaw has very little track record, right? I mean, uh, Domingo Santana has very little track record. And Jonathan VR wasn't strong last year. Uh, the starting pitchers, you know, Nelson's hurt. And Chase Anderson, I like a lot, doesn't have much of a track record. So I think it makes sense that the projections are a little conservative, uh, but that feels too conservative. I, I kind of think of this team as like an 84-win team that really could use a starting pitcher, I think. And I think that's, you know, I was linked to before when you look at their payroll, I think there's a very good chance that they will go out and get that starting pitcher. And that's where I think they might sort of like maybe move things around a little bit for them. Um, To me, it's just like, it's interesting to see a team, they're aggressively trying to get better. And we've seen a lot of teams just sort of kind of of sort of like hold steady and sort of maybe wait up the market. So it was kind of cool to see a team just be like, you know what, see the opportunity, see the opportunity and seize it and go for it. It was by far the most fun day of the, of the hot stove season, I think. Absolutely. I, I agree with you totally. It just, it's very cool right now to see any team going for it, but especially a team that doesn't often do this. So let's talk about Yelich. And I think everybody saw this and said he's getting out of Miami. He's going to Milwaukee. He's going to hit 40 home runs. And the answer to that is, as these things usually are, sort of. 
He uh, has been an above average hitter for pretty much his entire career. Last year, he hit 282, 369, 439. That's a 115 weighted runs created plus. Pretty much exactly the same as he's hit for his career. And if you were to just look at his slugging percentage, you would say, well, this is going to be great for him. Last year, he slugged 391 at home and 484 on the road. Uh, for his career, he slugged 396 at home, 465 on the road. Pretty big differences. He actually said, he was quoted to media last year saying, Marlins Park is one of the worst hitters parks in the league. And if you compare Marlins Park and Miller Park, it, it's actually pretty big. If you look at, uh, just say, left-handed hitters only last year. In Miller Park, left-handed hitters slugged 438. That was the 10th best in baseball. In Miami, it was 391, which was the 27th best in baseball. Now, that's a little bit unfair because D. Gordon and Ichiro are slightly different players than Travis Shaw and Eric Thames, but still, that makes that's a huge difference right there. Um, we also looked at our favorite stack stat, expected weighted on base, which is if you look at the outcomes of similar batted balls with the same properties of launch angle and exit velocity, what usually happens and what did happen. And we looked at this over the three years of StatCast, just lefties and only balls hit in the air, fly balls and line drives. At Miller Park, the expectation on those batted balls was a 540 weighted on base because we're just talking about line drives and fly ball and uh, fly balls here. So the expectation was 540. The actual output was 598. So that's a boost of 58 points. Uh, we'll call that found expected weighted on base. Uh, fourth most behind Colorado, Houston, and Cincinnati. And no, you shouldn't be surprised by any of those parks. <laughs> but what I found interesting at Marlins Park was forget what actually happened. The expected weighted on base was 519. So just the expectation was lower. I don't know. Do you think that's maybe like the, the batter's eye, something about the ballpark? Because we're not even talking about what happens when the ball's in the air. Just the quality of contact, uh, the outcomes are weaker there. It's it's weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Marlins Park has always, has always been odd to me. I feel like because of Stanton, for example, he makes it look small just because what a, what a freak he is. But when, and obviously he's not there anymore, but I think feel like when that park first opened, seems so enormous when you watch games on tv there it just feels just like and, and it was they pulled, yeah. ended up pulling the fence and I, I think that there's something i think there's there might be a psychological element at play for and that's sort of what why yelch is kind of an interesting test case where it's like whether he might actually make a conscious decision to try and change his approach a little bit being in a park where he suddenly feels like hey maybe i can hit for a little more power and here. i think that's interesting because he didn't actually lift the ball much more on the road i kind of thought he would um, and maybe that just means it's too difficult to maintain a home swing and a road swing at the same time. Uh, but yeah, it seems like he's going to have to, right? Let me give you one more data point on these parks. Uh, just going over the last couple of years, again, fly balls and line drives, lefty Milwaukee batters had a 339 weighted on base at home and a 317 away, right? So this this is kind of the more proper way to do it because you're talking about the same guys, the same talent level. Uh, that's a gain of 22 points of weighted on base. That's the seventh most. The same thing for Miami hitters, 322 at home, 327 away. Uh, that's actually a negative five points. That's fourth in the bottom. So all these park factors, uh, specific to left-handed hitters, they say to me that it's much, much better to be in Milwaukee. Here's the problem for Yelich. None of this matters if you're not hitting the ball in the air in the first place, right? Grounders don't leave the park no matter what park you're in. Last year, we looked at every hitter who had 100 balls in play. There were 261. His ground ball percentage of 56%, 16th highest. His launch angle was 4.7. The major league average was 11.1. Uh, I think this is something we've been talking about with Yelich for years. He hits the ball hard, but always on the ground. I think in the first year of StatCast, um, not quite in 2015, he was like the only player with a negative launch angle. For that sounds right. I, I remember that, yes. Negative launch angle meaning extremely on the ground. Yeah, and, but at the same time, you know, he's like, in terms of hard hit balls, just like raw number of hard hit balls, Batted balls with an exit velocity of 95 miles and above. 
he was among the league leaders last year. So he hits the ball hard. He just does not really elevate it at all. He's sort of like the anti-airball revolution. He sounds like Eric Cosmer to me. Is what he sounds like. Um, but yeah, he's he's going to a friendlier home park for this. But he's going to actually have to do something about it. You know, I, we tried to do the thing we did with uh, with Stanton and Hosmer about if he was playing in a different park, would he've had more home runs? And the answer was not really. He only had. Uh, 36 batted balls at home that went 300 feet anyway. The top guys had over 80, you know? So if you're not hitting it in the air, it doesn't matter. And I think that's what's most interesting to me. It's not just what will the park do to the batted balls, but what will the park do to his approach? And There's also a bit of the, like Eric Hosmer, there's a bit of like, if it's not really broken, right. don't fix it. You know, maybe it could be better, but it certainly could also be a lot worse. And, you know, Yelich has some speed. You know, there's some, his ground balls are more valuable than, you know, say, uh, you know, Daniel Murphy's ground balls, or, sure. you know, so it's there's there's I'm 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 actually not expecting a drastic change in, in Christian Yellow. I think a couple more home runs, right? I, like twenty, maybe, but I'm not. Like, expect, I guess in terms of like ground ball rate and you know a real change in approach that's right. noticeable beyond just oh maybe I picked up a couple other home runs. Yeah, I mean maybe he never tried to in Miami because he never thought it would work, and then that persisted through the whole year. And this gets more like psychological than anything. So that's the Statcast look at Christian Yelich, and Statcast is powered by Amazon Web Services. And now it's time for uh, Lorenzo Cain, right? I mean, I don't think it's going to be as big of a difference because it's just not the same for right-handed hitters in Milwaukee. But the difference here is that he's coming from Kansas City. And I don't think Kansas City gets the, I don't know, maybe credit's not the right word, reputation uh, for being a, an extreme pitcher's park probably as much as it should. This is this is like my favorite home run stat of the year. If you looked at average home run distance by ballpark, the average homer in Kansas City was 409 feet. That was second longest in baseball behind, unsurprisingly, Coors Field. But that's for two very different reasons. Coors Field creates long home runs. In Kansas City, it's so big that if you're going to get a home run in the first place, you have to hit it that far. This is why Steve Balboni's record of 36 home runs stood for like three decades, because uh, that ball is uh, that ballpark is enormous. So when you do the same kind of comparison, what you see is that in Milwaukee, it's somewhat neutral for right-handed batters. If you look at uh, righty batters, uh, righty brewer batters over the last three years, 311 weighted on base at home. 310 on the road, basically identical. If you look at some of the other sites that have ballpark factor, uh, Baseball Perspective says that the right-handed home run factor in Milwaukee is 102, which 100 is average, that's 16th. In Kansas City, it's 29th. It's actually really difficult to hit a home run in Kansas City, although I did find this interesting. His career numbers at home are better than they were on the road. Uh, At home, 302, 346, 438, that is a 340 weighted on base. On the road, a 324 weighted on base. But then in 2017, 12 of his 15 homers were on the road. So in conclusion, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to help him a little bit because Kansas City's big. But I'm not. I mean, he is what he is at this point. I'm not expecting a huge Lorenzo Cain uh, power boost. I don't think. Big question with the Brewers really is what are they going to do with their outfield? Because now they have obviously have Kane Yelich. They still have Ryan Braun, and they still have Domingo Santana, who hit 30 home runs last year and was one of the like the main reasons they were such overachievers was Domingo Santana. Uh, so, what, what do you think is gonna? How do you think that's gonna play out? Are we forgetting about Keon Broxton and oh, uh, <laughs> and Brett and Brett uh, Sorretti? Well, Broxton, you he know, has an option, so he'll probably. And also, down. he's you know, there's still some some holes in his game, I know. and he's but you know, he does not have the success. I mean, think about Santana; he has now had like a legitimate season of success, 370 OBP, 30 home runs, like. He's a guy. Yeah, I mean, I was I was mostly kidding about Broxton. We liked him a lot last year because he hit the ball hard and he's got great speed. And then he struck out like eighty percent of the time, and it didn't work out. So he's probably going to go back to the minors. Um, 
Santana, I like him a lot, I think. Uh, I remember, you know, he was, we keep going back somehow to that Houston-Milwaukee trade from a couple years ago. I feel like we've talked about it like five times, and he was a part of that trade that's really worked out well uh, for Milwaukee. And he kind of had a breakout year last year, 30 home runs. Uh, he's always going to strike out a lot. He's not a strong defensive outfielder. I think he stole 15 bases, and he's, what, 26 years old, something like that? But you're right. If you look at Kane and Yelich and Braun, I'm not sure Santana is actually one of the three best outfielders unless they do move Braun to first base or something crazy like that. But they, I mean, like, you know, they still have Eric Dames. So right. obviously Dames is going to play first. So even then you're looking at, at Braun platooning with Dames at first. Is that, like, really enough to to justify, like – I mean, maybe you want the depth, but they also, you know, they they actually have a lot of like interesting like bench pieces already that can sort of fill in and fill in the gaps in these places. So like Santana, particularly for a team that needs pitching, um, he's an interesting trade trade piece. Everybody has thrown out the idea. Uh, I think the first one I saw it was was Anthony Kastrovitz uh, that Santana should be traded to uh, Cleveland for Danny Salazar. And that just makes so much sense that it's so obvious that it could never actually happen because things like that never end up happening. But I like that idea a lot. What's interesting about Santana, I was just digging into this, is it's unclear to me, at least, when you look at sort of deeper dive at his numbers, how good he actually is. On the surface last year, his numbers were very impressive. And it looked like, hey, this is like a former top prospect who really panned out. You know, when he first debuted, he struck out in like his first like 15 plate appearances or something. It was like, you know, it, it was sort of this embarrassing like. I, I remember I made this joke the other day. Uh, he has and will always have for his rookie season a 78% strikeout rate. We're talking about like a dozen plate appearances. Yes. But so so I went back and looked and I noticed that he has a home run to fly ball rate of uh, last year of right around 30%, which is. On the high side, I mean, good players do that, but like the league average is what around ten percent. Like it's so hard to tell anymore because it's changed it's, so it's, much. It's, the last it used to be ten percent yeah. for fantasy purposes. Like five years ago, it was ten percent. It's probably right. more like fifteen percent now. Because anyway, so over the last three years, minimum a thousand plate appearances, home run for per fly ball rate. Number one, Giancarlo Stanton, thirty point one percent. Number two, Domingo Santana, twenty nine point five. Number three, Chris with a C Davis. Number four, Chris with a K Davis. Number five, Nelson Cruz. So right, basically, you just, you've just proven that he's an elite power hitter. <laughs> Let's move on to the next segment. We're done. <laughs> so basically, four of the best power hitters currently in the game, and Domingo Santana, who's had one great year as a power hitter. And then if you go look, take a step deeper and look at you know, batted ball profiles via Statcast. You look at barrels per plate appearances last year amongst uh, players with at least uh, 100 balls in play. Santana ranked 112th out of 387 in barrels per plate appearances. All those other guys, except for Chris with the C. Davis, were in the top 10. If you go to barrels per batted ball, all those guys, including Chris with the C. Davis, were in the top 25. Santana was 67th out of 387. So he does not consistently have the same type of contact as the other elite power hitters. Also, his home runs, average home run distance, and I realize that average home run difference is a bit flawed, as you discussed sort of the... the Kaufman Field example, Kaufman Stadium example, where long fences can sort of like skew um, home run distances. If you end up, if you play in a park with a lot of like, you know, cheap home runs, you can actually end up with a lot of like home runs, like of like 370 feet that wouldn't be home run anywhere else. And the, kind of like the D.D. Gregorius effect. Exactly. But he's 300, his average home run distance last year was 394 feet, which ranked 176th out of 228 players with at least 10 homers. So I guess what I'm saying is the raw totals look like, hey, this guy's a burgeoning elite power hitter but the batted ball profile suggests that maybe he's more of a, a 20 homer guy and i'm not you know with all the strikeouts i see a, a wide variety of outcomes and now that we've seen to me a lot of teams valuing players in similar ways and to me that's the biggest reason for sort of the slow off season i wonder how teams actually value Domingo santana let me ask you a question forget fielding for a second just on offense when you think of 
Domingo Santana versus Kane and Yelich, what is the one, what is the biggest reason he stands out from those two? Strikeouts. Strikeouts. Exactly right. The general manager of the Brewers is David Stearns, who came from Houston, and what was probably the biggest thing Houston did last year, they cut down their strikeout. So I, I you know, I'm formulating a conspiracy theory on the air, I guess. Maybe he looks at that and he says it's easier than ever to hit home runs. Uh, I want to trade out a guy who strikes out a lot for guys who put the bat on the ball more often. I, I don't know if that's actually true, but it's it, the connection is there. And since we're professionals, that's a great segue <laughs> to talking about the Houston Astros. Um, I don't think it's hyperbole. I know it's really easy, like right now, to say. Oh, some team was the best this or best that or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, the Astros last year were very legitimately one of the best lineups in the history of baseball. They led major leagues last year in runs, batting average on base, slugging, weighted on base, weighted runs created plus. They had the fewest strikeouts. They had the second most home runs. Uh, if you have the, the highest slugging and the fewest strikeouts, you are almost by definition going to be a very good offense. And if you look at modern baseball history back to 1920, they had the fourth best lineup by weighted runs created plus if you count pitchers hitting and the 10th best if you don't. And if you look at the other names of teams on this list these, these are like the elite baseball lineups ever there's like six different ruth garrick yankees teams from the late 20s and early 30s the big red machine in 76 the 53 dodgers of snyder and jackie robinson i mean these are like literally the teams that they write songs about and the 2017 astros were right up there with them and unsurprisingly they won the world series so here's the question i had as it is very much hot take season can they be better Right, they were already elite. They're already historically great. Are there reasons that they they could actually be better? Uh, and I say yes. Obviously, there are reasons they couldn't be too. Everybody gets hurt, and that's fine. But there are a couple of reasons I think that they could be better. Um, first, I think like the core of the lineup. These are guys who are consistent, like Springer, Altuve, McCann, Reddick, Gaddis. They've sort of found their level, varying from slightly above average to superstar. And for the last couple of seasons, you know they've been there. So barring a huge injury or step setback. I don't see any of those guys kind of markedly changing their performance next year. Right? And, and notably, like the, the core of the team, Correa, Springer, Altuve, Bregman, those guys are all in, in their prime. They're all like yeah. 28 and younger. Or, or, or barely even there yet. I yeah. mean, Bregman hasn't even turned 24 yet. Yeah. So like to me, it's like that, you know, McCann, you know, he's one of the guys where it's like, oh, if he really falls off, you know, okay, that could be a, that could be a, a big drop off for the team. Or even Gaddis. So Gaddis is, I mean, he's not he's not young because he didn't debut until he was like twenty five, but he's not old either. You know, right. he's like you know, he's I think he's probably like thirty or so. I'm gonna give you three reasons why I think that they can be better. The first is you hope that Correa is gonna be healthy. I, I don't think enough people realize how good Correa was last year because he didn't end up on any of the end of season leaderboards because he only got into 109 games, 481 plate appearances because he injured his thumb. So if you were to pull up the leaderboards right now, he wouldn't be there. He didn't qualify with 502 plate appearances. If he did, if he'd gotten just about 20 more plate appearances, he would have finished sixth in weighted runs created plus behind Trout, Judge, Votto, Altuve, and Stanton. He just turned 23, and he would have been the sixth best hitter in baseball, uh, and he was on a rate basis. So if you have him for the extra 50 or so games that he missed right there, that's a boost, right? Because that was not out of nowhere for him. He he's obviously was the number one pick. He's a superstar, and he was better last yeah, year. Yeah, no, it looked like he might win MVP until he got hurt, and then Altuve had that ridiculous August where like he basically had like you know 80 hits in August. But to give you a sense of how stacked the Astros are, if you look at steamer projections, Correa is projected as their best hitter in terms of weighted runs created plus. George Springer, second. Jose Altuve, <laughs> the LVP, is projected to be their third best hitter. It's, uh, it's almost unfair. I'm going to give you another reason. Alex Bregman may have shown us the beginning of a, of a breakout. Last year in the first half, he was fine. Uh, you know, 338 on base, 419 slugging, 105 weighted runs created plus. He was slightly above average. Of the 166 qualified hitters in the first half, he was 93rd. So, again, basically about average. 
In the second half, he smashed 367 on base, 536 slugging, weighted runs created plus of 141. He was the 18th best hitter in baseball in the second half, better than Rendon, Bellinger, Ramirez. Uh, And then what did he do in the playoffs? He hit two home runs off of Sale, one off of Kershaw, and I think one off of Miller. I want to say it was it was four elite or three elite names that he hit four home runs off of. Uh, he the thing is he didn't actually hit the ball harder in the second half uh, or walk more. He struck out less, pulled the ball more often. So I kind of look at him as being in the middle of those two. But if that's like twenty five points above average and he's your sixth best hitter or whatever, uh, that's insanely good. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge. Bregman fan um, not just as a hitter I just think he's like a really he's just a really smart player like in the playoffs he made a number of just like really like smart the defensive throws like, home like, yeah just yeah. like just like he's just really well-rounded player you know you hear a lot of the the, the most common comp I've heard for him is Dustin Pedroia I actually think he's just gonna be a better ver- I think he's gonna be a better version of Dustin Pedroia I agree just like you know similar that they're both like you know short short guys with pop from big college programs but like Bregman's a better athlete. He's just a better. He's just gonna. To me, if he's healthy, he's a better version of Dustin Pedroia, which is a superstar. He, he spent half the year hitting eighth last year. Isn't that absurd? Like you have this guy hitting eighth, and then the third reason, and I I found this to be really interesting. The Astros are really great last year, but they still had their troubles. They had a couple of guys who just did not perform very well, and that that starts with Carlos Beltran. His final season before he retired. Uh, 509 plate appearances, and he had a 76 weighted runs created plus, where 100 is average. There were 17 Houston hitters who had 50 plate appearances, and only five of them were below average, right? So Beltran, who retired, uh, Nori Aoki, who was traded in July, Derek Fisher, who was a a rookie and well-regarded but came up and struggled a little bit, Uh, and then Cameron Mabin and Juan Centeno, who were backups. Uh, Mabin's a free agent, and Centeno was uh, picked up on waivers by Texas. So between these five guys— they had 1,019 plate appearances, and their total line was 234, 292, 378. That is 79 weighted runs, weighted runs created plus. Basically, almost exactly what Jason Hayward has done for the Cubs over the last two years, which isn't good, obviously. Jason Hayward has been a drag on that offense. So if you simply look at these 1,000 plate appearances of negative, and you realize that four of these guys are certainly not going to be back, and Fisher might not make the opening day roster, and you replace them with even just average. doesn't have to be great. That is a boost right there, and that's pretty easy. Beltran was obviously not strong last year. It's not difficult to upgrade on him. Cough, cough, Lucas Duda. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the two places where they're most likely going to see a drop-off are, one, Jose Altuve, just because he can't I agree. Re- repeat what he did. We, we saw his career, yeah. I think. And Marvin Gonzalez, because that was the guy who sort of like really overperformed last year. And most people are sort of expecting, okay, he's not going to do that again, is he? I, he's not. I, I have Marvin Gonzalez data, and it's mostly going to align with what you said, but there is one thing that confuses me about Marvin Gonzalez. So as you said, a total breakout year. In his entire career leading up to 2017, which I, I believe started in 2011, uh, he hit 257, 298 on base, 389 slugging, a 90-weighted runs created plus, a below-average hitter. And then suddenly in 2017, out of pretty much nowhere, 303, 377, a 530 slugging, and a 144 weighted runs created. Plus, he got some down ballot MVP award uh, votes. And I guess if you're going to have a historic year and win the World Series, you kind of need a guy like that. And unsurprisingly, if you look at the largest overperformers when it comes to expected weighted on base and actual weighted on base, he was tied for second. Eduardo Nunez was first, and Zach Cozart, kind of a similar guy with an out of nowhere year, uh, was tied for second. So I see that, and I said, it's not going to happen. He was just popping balls into the minute made seats. But here's the weird thing. His home numbers were actually worse than his road numbers. His home numbers last year were pretty good. 339 on base, 543 slugging. That's fantastic. Uh, 368 weight on the base. Marwin on the road, 416 on base and a 516 slugging. 
a 396 weighted on base, so clearly it wasn't just about hitting the ball at home. I don't have a good answer for that. I just found it kind of stunning because it wasn't what I expected to see. No, certainly not. But I think that, you know, even the most uh, uh, earnest uh, Marvin Gonzalez fan would would have to expect a little bit of a drop. And as I said, I looked back at 2016 to see what the uh, largest overperformers were from that year from expected weight on the base. And, you know, Trey Turner, Tyler Naquin, Sandy Leone, Aledmus Diaz, guys who... Did not have a, a great season. So, uh, you know, obviously I don't think anyone expects Gonzalez to have a repeat. But if he does, this is going to be the best offense we're going to see in a long time. And, of course, obviously everyone expects the Astros big favorites in the AOS. But there's another team in the AOS that has caught your eye or uh, caught our eye. It's, it's the Oakland Athletics, and I feel like they get pretty forgotten. Obviously the Astros are the defending champs, and now the Angels have Trout and Shohei Otani and Kozart and Kinsler. Uh, and the Rangers and Mariners have both tried to make some moves uh, as well. But it's really it's the A's that always stand out to me as being really interesting because they've made specifically in their bullpen, but really more than that, a couple of moves uh, that I find fascinating. And I think we talked about one of these a couple weeks ago when they traded Ryan Healy for Emilio Pagan from Seattle. What they've done now is they've they've added three relievers who I find interesting. Pagan, uh, they signed Yusmero Petit, and just the other day they they traded for Ryan Bookter from Kansas City. And if you look at expected weighted on base for relievers, there were 254 of them who faced 100 batters. Pagan was 17th best, tied with David Robertson. Bookter was 29th, tied with Cody Allen. And Petit was 37th, tied with Brian Shaw. <laughs> that is a, it's pretty impressive. I mean, we're talking about these three guys who aren't really big names, but it seems clear to me that the A's are valuing, if not ex-Wohoba itself, something similar in their front office. And what I did was I looked at uh, 2018 rosters, and I looked at the performance from 2017. So obviously this isn't a true projection. Not everybody's going to say static from year to year. But I looked at every reliever who faced at least 100 batters and had an expected weighted on base of 300 or lower. So basically that's where I said average or better. Oakland now has eight guys. That's tied with the Yankees, who are going to have a fantastic bullpen, and Seattle for the most. So, I mean, I'm not saying the A's will have the best bullpen in baseball, because they most certainly will not. But they might have a really deep bullpen. You have Pagan and Buckter and Petit. But I've always loved Chris Hatcher more than anyone really should. Uh, Liam Hendricks, I've always been a big fan of as well. And then you've got guys like Blake Trinan and Santiago Casilla and Ryan Dull. This could be an a interestingly good bullpen. Or am I completely out of my mind? No, it's there. It's sort of stealth because it doesn't have any of like the, the quote-unquote big, big names. But, I mean, this is... This is sort of the way the A's have operated for a long time. And, you know, a lot of the teams in similar situations in terms of, uh, you know, market size and, and, and payroll, what have you, have, like, you know, gone the full rebuild, rebuild route. And it's sort of expect, accepted, like, okay, like, you know, we, 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 this is what we have to do to sort of compete. We have to really just kind of blow it up and start from scratch. The A's have never really done that. They've always tried to put, like, a competitive team on the field and to their credit the thing is like yeah you know they had the great run in the early you know the, the quote-unquote money ball teams you know 2001 2002 giambi that whole crew and then it was like pretty dark for a few years but then like a few years ago they won the you know they had a couple more division champions made the playoffs like they've actually been able to do it without ever really blowing it up and the fact they've done it before makes me believe that like they could do it again. People forget that in 2014, which is not that long ago, when they made that trade, uh, Cespedes for John Lester, which did not end up being a very popular trade, but at the time, they were the best team in baseball. They had the most wins in baseball. Uh, they had a rotation that was smoke and mirrors, and they really needed someone like John Lester, and it didn't work out. And, you know, they've made some trades that haven't worked out either. They traded Donaldson to Toronto. They traded Addison Russell to Chicago. But some of these guys, some of the guys they're getting back are starting to pay off. Like Kendall Graveman came over from uh, Toronto. He's in the rotation. Franklin Barreto is a shortstop prospect who 
came up a little bit last year is just about to be ready. A lot of these guys are are starting to pay off, and I think it's, they're not going to compete this year with the Astros because nobody is. The Astros are fantastic, and I think they're going to have a tough time getting over even just the teams in their division to say nothing of like the Red Sox or you know the, uh, anybody else in the Central. But they're they're interesting, and I think that's what I'm, I'm excited about because you could see this being the beginning of something. Right, as opposed to just being, oh, it's a, another hopeless like eighty-five loss season. As a quick aside, now that you mentioned the, the Donaldson trade and Graveman and Barreto, what would it take? How good would Barreto and Graveman have to be for that trade to to like not be a complete like loss for the A's? I, I, I have a procedural question on that. Which Josh Donaldson are we talking about? Because I do think people forget that after he was traded to Toronto, he went from very good player to MVP. They didn't trade the MVP at that time. No, they tra- but they traded a guy who looked like like late blooming star who had, I believe, four years of team control yes. less. It was t- it was after the 2014 season, so it was 15, 16, 17, 18, right? This is his last year before he hits free agency. So they basically traded a guy with four years of control, and they got back what Brett Lowry. Which was a disaster. Sean Nolan, who hasn't done much. Kendall Graveman. So really, it's great. And, and Frank Graveman. Graveman and Barreto are the two guys who could like salvage it. So right. like, is there any scenario in which though like they they are good enough to sort of like justify the trade? No. <laughs> I mean, listen. Is there a scenario? Sure. If you know Kendall Graveman turns into Clayton Kershaw and Barreto is Corey Seager, yeah. I mean, is that likely? No. I don't think there's anything that can happen that's going to make. Fans forget that the left side of the infield could have been Donaldson and Addison Russell, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that was, rough. That was probably the trade that probably in some ways hurt them the most was they traded what it was Russell for basically half season of Samarja, was it? Well, then they turned Samarja into uh, Marcus Semien, who is their, story, their shortstop now. And Russell didn't have a good year last year. Well, that's, I mean, in some ways it's weird because that one has the perception of being the worst. But I was I was thinking about it today and I was wondering, like, maybe they knew some, maybe they maybe they sort of knew what knew that maybe Russell wasn't all he was crafting up to be why they why they were willing to trade him. Teams, you know, the the best teams scout their prospects better than anyone else. So when they make them that was the whole thing with John Charles when the, the Braves for so many years, they never lost trades. When they trade away prospects, they did not pan out elsewhere. Right. I actually Personally, I wouldn't mind if uh, if Semyon ended up being a better player than Russell because there's a, a very bad take of mine from like early 2016 where I think I said that and it has not aged well, but it could age well. Uh, but yeah, you're right. And when I look at the, uh, you know, we looked at the bullpen, right? And the rotation, it's not strong, but it's so young, right? Like Graveman and, and, and Mengden and all, like, all these guys, they're, they're interesting. Jarrell Cotton, I actually really like Jarrell Cotton. Right. He's got these got like the screwball or the funky changeup. How can you not read Pedro him? Martinez tweeted last year that Jarrell Cotton reminds me a lot of myself, which is oh my I don't know how you I don't know how you get out of bed in the morning after you see that. I mean that is high praise. Um, but I remember uh, earlier this offseason I looked at guys who deserved better, right? Who had a very good expected weight on base and very poor ERA. Uh, Jarrell Cotton was on that list. He had a 313 expected weight on base and a 558 ERA. The expected weight on base is basically the same as Marcus Stroman and Taiwan Walker. I think the ERA. Uh, went up because he had a couple of disaster starts, and also the A's had arguably the worst defense in baseball last year. And it's going to be better. Chris Davis with a K is not going to play left field. Uh, they're going to have a full season of Chapman, who I don't want to like get Rockies fans even angrier at me than they usually are. Matt Chapman may be as good or better a defensive third baseman than Nolan Arenado. Like he's that good, and he above average hitter. And of course, Matt Olson comes out and was you know Reese Hoskins with like half of the love. If you look at the second half last year, the A's had the third highest expected weighted on base as an offense and the third highest weighted runs created plus as an offense. And then they've added Steven Piscotty. So I think this could actually be an above average offense, a pretty good bullpen, weak rotation is going to be the problem. But it's it's not out of the question for me to see a 500 team. Like, could they be the Twins? They don't have a Buxton. I get that. Could they be this year's Twins? I mean, they don't have a Buxton in terms of the all-around 
star player like that, but like you know, Olsen, you know, full season of Olsen, you assume that he, if you can, I mean, obviously he's not going to do what he did over a full season, but you may have a you know real you know impact power hitter. We've discussed Piscotti recently in the show. I think he's going to be a huge asset for them, and I, I mean, I'm I'm. Probably higher on. I'm definitely higher on Kendall Graven than most people. You, yes, you are. <laughs> uh, I've always been a believer, as you know, from my uh, Luis Perdomo affinity. Perhaps it's just you know I always like single ball pitchers, and I just think that like there's I see with his velocity there I see a path to to success. Uh, Manea, wide variety of outcomes for a guy like that. Um, same with Cotton. So like yes, there's there's to me there's a, a twins upside in terms of like. Compete for second wild card. And, and there's prospects coming, right? Uh, Grant Holmes, who they got from the Dodgers in that trade, is almost ready. Uh, A.J. Puck, who is a very high draft pick, could be up maybe later this year, or if not, then the year after. Um, I, what I also really like about the A's, just from a StatCast point of view, they had the lowest ground ball rate in baseball last year, and unsurprisingly, the highest launch angle in baseball last year. Ground balls are terrible. Everybody knows that. <laughs> and while that doesn't obviously automatically mean that you're a good offense, you have to make contact, you have to do it with exit velocity, uh, any team that starts out not hitting ground balls is a team I like. Uh, that's a good start for me. So I'm going to say the A's are going to be a top 10 offense, a average or better bullpen, and uh, probably a bottom ten rotation, and that's going to sink them. But they'll be interesting. That's the entire and, and, point. And a top five uniform with their brand new Kelly Green oh, jersey. Top one, top one. I, I listen. I am a uniform nerd, and when I green's my favorite color, and I saw this, and I'm like, I don't want this to be their Friday jersey. I want this to be every day of the week. It's fantastic. Is that is it the is it that what it is supposed to be their Friday Friday homes or Fridays all, all around? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. I think maybe just Fridays at home. Whatever it is, it's not enough because <laughs> green is a sorely underutilized uh, color in baseball, really across sports. And I was extremely happy to see it. That's probably the most interesting to me is. About the A's. So final question on the A's. I've never been to the Coliseum. Have you been to the Coliseum? No. And I know it does not have the strongest reputation, but I perversely really want to go there and just check it out. I think it would actually be a lot of fun. So we might have to organize, like, uh, we'll find out when Luis Perdomo is pitching in Oakland, and then we're going to go out there and see it. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. That's our show for this week, the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening.